you want a title for today's message, I've called it A Most Important Rescue Mission. And this is what he says, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Oh Lord, it would appear that James is not done with us. And so it would appear that you then are not done with us. Lord, we recognize that all these words are ultimately breathed out by you. You're the author of them all. and So it would appear that you today are informing us and preparing us for important rescue missions. Oh Lord, would we have ears to hear then this morning? Would we pay attention? Would we lean in? Aware that we're being addressed by you? Prepare us, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we saw last week, as James begins to land his letter, as he begins to conclude his letter and sign off his letter, in verses 12 through 18, he has one simple message, and that message is keep looking up. Whatever happens in our lives, whatever is going on in our lives, whether we're suffering and going through difficulty, or whether life is great, then keep Looking up, whatever the circumstances might be, if you're suffering, look up. If you're sick, then look up. If you're of cheer, then look up. Always understanding that without him, you're not going to make it. You will not joyfully be able to pursue the Lord without looking up. And understand that by going to him, you're positioning yourself to experience the gracious, powerful generosity of the Lord. And so keep looking up. And yet it would appear in the final two verses of this letter that James isn't done with us and he isn't done with our eyes. Because having helped us see that we need to keep looking up in the final two verses, his exhortation is simply this. Keep looking at one another as well. That whatever happens and whatever's going on, keep looking up. And keep looking at one another as well. See, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain asks the Lord a question. Cain has killed his brother Abel. The Lord knows it. He comes looking for Cain. And he asks Cain a question. And in response, Cain answers almost in a mocking tone to the Lord, Am I my brother's keeper? Well, James takes us by the hand, I think, in this text and says, listen, am I my brother's keeper? Are you your brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. You have an important part to play in each other's lives. You have a vital and most important part to play in each other's lives. So keep looking up, having considered all that I've told you, but keep looking at one another as well. And what James does then in this text, in these wonderful two verses, is talk to us about a most important rescue mission. 
a most important rescue mission that each and every one of us at different times in our lives will probably get sent on. A most important rescue mission that doesn't just involve pastors, but it involves one another, as James tells us. It is every face who knows the Lord that could be involved in this rescue mission at one time in their lives. And James wants us to be prepared for that. He wants us to be aware of that. He wants us to be equipped for the mission, should we be called to go. And his premise is, yep, you're probably going to get called to go. There's going to be different times in your lives when you're going to see family, you're going to see brothers and sisters, and you are going to get sent on a most important rescue mission to them. So I have three points this morning, all I trust taken from the text. Number one, the concern. Number two, the remedy. And then number three, the application. So let's start where James begins with number one, the concern. Look again at verse 19. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth. See, it is clear that James's concern here relates to a brother or a sister. His concern relates here to someone who is a member and a part of the church, and yet one who is wandering from the truth, and one who is therefore straying into clear, sinful patterns in their life. This then is a brother or sister, somebody that we'd be worshipping alongside, somebody that we'd be hearing testimony from, somebody that we'd be serving alongside, yet now they have wandered from the truth and they have strayed into clear, sinful patterns in their life. And James could not be more concerned for them. Because as he says in verse 20, the consequences of such wandering from the truth is death. First and foremost, then, that would mean spiritual death. And James is clearly concerned that for some, although they've called themselves brothers and sisters, as they've wandered from the truth, what they have revealed is they weren't brothers or sisters at all. Jesus himself talks about it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Jesus says, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, but the one who does the will of of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, Jesus himself is making it clear. There's going to be some that said, Lord, Lord. But it was just a religious exercise. There was nothing in their heart. They weren't like Thomas. They weren't hitting their knees saying, You are my Lord and my God. I'm in. Take me. Take me. I want you as my Savior and take my life. I want to be following you. So I bow my knees to you, recognizing you are my savior and you are my king, and now I rise and go and follow you. Jesus is saying, no, not everybody's going to be doing that. There's going to be people where in reality that's not their story. So they may have called me Lord, Lord, but on that day I will say, no, I never knew you. Depart from me. James has been helping us see exactly the same thing in James chapter 2. 
where he's given us a whole section from verse 14 through 20, 26. He's given a whole section on faith without works is dead. Because you've been trying to help us see this exact same issue, that just because you say you believe, even the demons believe. Belief is entrusting yourself to the Lord. It is faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ where you bow your knee to him as your Savior and your King. And so James tells us by way of conclusion in chapter 2, verse 26, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead dead. See, make no mistake, James knows that we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. James knows it. He's the brother of Jesus. He's heard Jesus no doubt say this again and again and again, put your faith in me, put your faith in me, and I will save you. James knows all it takes is faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. But what James also knows is where that faith is real, where that faith is genuine, that faith will never be alone. It'll bear fruit. It'll blossom in in one's life because it won't be able to help it. If you say you love somebody, you can watch their life and you can see, my gosh, so you do. If you say somebody is your king and your ruler, you should be able to see in your life that, God, my gosh, that is so true. He is, look. And James is saying, absolutely. It only takes faith, but where that faith is real, it will always bear fruit in one's life. And so our our works, the things we do, they will never earn our salvation. They will never merit our salvation. They will never put us in a position to deserve our salvation. But they will exhibit it. They will mark it. They will demonstrate it. They will be the fruit that others should be able to look on and go, yes, it is real for them. And James is clearly concerned that as some wonder from the truth, it may reveal that sadly, their faith was not real to them. It was religious. It may have been an emotional moment. But it was not faith that is true saving faith. And James is deeply concerned about that because he's aware that what that means is they're on a collision course with spiritual death. The reality is that heaven won't be their home. Hell will be their home. Hell, which is talked about in the Bible a ton, an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. James loves these people. He knows their names. And he doesn't want this to happen to them. That's why he starts the words with my brothers. He's aware, I love you. But I'm concerned that as some wonder from the truth and they start to display ongoing sinful patterns in their life, is this not for some proof that they were never really on the path? And also, James is no doubt concerned about functional death as well. So people that, sure, they are Christians, but they have wandered off the path and they've wandered on the path and as a result, they are experiencing, in effect, functional death. I mean, Jesus himself in John chapter 10 tells us that he has come to give life and that in abundance. 
I don't know what that means to you, but what that means to me is a happy place. I mean, it sounds good. It does not, I mean, it is the good news of the gospel, not like, oh, you should become a Christian. It's really good. Hard, hard, very hard, but really good. That's just so weird. You know, Jesus Christ came to give life and that in abundance. This is good news. This is news that we want to tell our friends. Why? Because it is good. It is happy. It is good. It is encouraging. Jesus Christ came to to give life and that in abundance. He came to make a way for you to be forgiven of your sin. That isn't just a catchphrase. That's a reality. That he is covered over your sin. God instructs Noah very early on in the book of Genesis to build an ark and he encourages him to cover all the wood with pitch. What that means is there is a tar-like substance all the way around the ark which literally covers over the wood. And whenever you talk about forgiveness in the Old Testament, that's what they talk back to. A covering over, a covering over, a covering over. God is looking you in your eye and saying, through Jesus, I will cover over your sin. I won't see it anymore. I will see the blood of Jesus Christ instead. Jesus Christ came to give life and that in abundance, which involves forgiveness, it involves reconciliation, it involves knowing that heaven is your home, it it involves adoption, it involves in your life Jesus Christ saying to you, listen, I love you, I'm for you, I created you, I want it to go well for you, so here is a book that will massively help you. But my word isn't just truth, it is truth. It is everything. And it's all in here. I want this to go well for you. I want you to stay on the path that brings life. So here is my word. Because I came to give life not in abundance. But then Jesus tells us in the very same chapter, but Satan, he came to kill, rob, and destroy. Now for the Christian, Satan cannot kill you, nor can he destroy you. But he can rob you. He can always rob you. Because Jesus says, listen, I'm going to show you the path. This is the light of my path. This is the path. Follow these words. It will go well for you. But Satan says, nah. That ain't the good stuff. That's hard. Here's the good stuff. Whoa, over here. You, woo-hoo. This is where it's at. This is where it's going to go well for you. This is where you will receive life and that in abundance. I mean, look at that path. That looks hard. This is where you receive life and that abundance. Over here. Or it's over here if you like. Satan's always doing that. He's always seeking to tempt us. But here's the reality. As one pastor says, evil tastes good. And it does. Don't be fooled that sin won't be enjoyable for you. It will be enjoyable. But here's the thing. Evil tastes good. But take note. Evil always leads to nausea and vomiting. So it does. You leave the path thinking, this is good. And then momentarily you think, this is great. But evil and sin never delivers as advertised. It's not advertised that it comes with nausea and vomiting, but it does. Because Satan seeks to kill and rob and destroy. He seeks to pull us away from Christ and Him crucified. It's what He did to Adam and Eve. It's what He's been doing ever since. He didn't really mean that. He's really not that good. This is the good stuff. And sadly, even Christians take the bait. This is what I need. 
what I'm after. And Jesus says, listen, I've come to give you life in abundance. We're going this way. And we go, nah. I think the good stuff's over here. And we are robbed of the joy. And what we don't realize is where that is going to take us is to nausea and vomiting. Listen, a wandering heart is always a dissatisfied heart. Always. Yet Jesus Christ came and said, listen, I will satisfy you. I will give you all you need. Trust me. And James is concerned And sadly, there appear to be some in the congregation that are going to be experiencing, or indeed are experiencing, functional death. Because they've got pulled off the path. Do you know what happens when you get pulled off the path? Here's what happens. Here's one of the things that happens. I just feel so stressed with my life. I feel overwhelmed. I just don't know how I can do this. Will you pray for me? Oh, I will pray for you. But maybe you need to repent. And realize you've been pulled off the path. The path is over here. Why are you over here? I just feel so overwhelmed with my life. I feel like my life is such a mess. What you are experiencing in that moment is nausea and vomiting. Because you got pulled off the path. Jesus said, listen, take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to give you life and that in abundance. Yet we start to pursue a whole load of other things, do we not, as we get distracted. And James is looking out at the congregation who he loves and saying, listen, I don't want this for you. His concern then is that some, it would appear, and some will in the future wander from the truth and as a result they are experiencing and inhabiting in their lives sinful patterns in their lifestyle. James is concerned because he knows the consequence of that will be death. So then he gives us a remedy, point two. Point two, the remedy. He gives it in the remaining of these verses. It's wonderful. He says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I mean, this is profound. This is huge. James is saying, listen, I'm concerned that some will have wandered off the path of truth. They will start to experience either now or in the future death in their life. I have a remedy. Who is it? You. It's you. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Oh, yes. Yes, you certainly are. What is the remedy for an individual who is wandering off the truth? It's a friend. It's a friend. A brother or a sister who does all they can then to bring the wanderer back. Alec Motier in his commentary says it this way. It's wonderful. He says, James here brings us within the local church and urges us to watch for anyone who is losing grip on truth and whose way of life the error of sin is showing itself. Of course, we must not sit back and do nothing when we see these things on the wider canvas of society or in our denomination, though more often than not we find ourselves at a loss what to do. But within the local church, we dare not treat truth and life as negotiable. No, it is our task to care 
and to rescue. And I think there is no greater description of what James is talking about here than the word rescue. It is our job as Christians when we see brothers and sisters wandering away from the truth, understanding that the consequences of that wandering will be death when an individual goes on a rescue mission to them. What James is saying is, listen, that is exactly what you must do. You must do it for each other. Pay attention. He does not say, when someone is wandering from the truth, call the elders. No. If one amongst you is sick, call the elders. Somebody wandering from the truth, you're on. It's you. Every member has a part to play in this. Don't call the elders. Call yourself. You're on. It's your time. You know, one can wonder then, how on earth am I going to do this? How on earth could any one of us do this? I mean, think about it. He's calling us to bring back the individual, to save the individual, to cover the sins of the individual. How are we meant to do that? How can any one of us go after a brother or sister who has wandered and then bring them back and save them and cover their sins? It's not possible, right? How can any one of us actually do that? Well, it's true in ourselves. It's not possible. Only God can do those things, can't he? Only God can bring back, only God can save, only God can cover the sins. But what James is helping us see is, listen, yes, only God can do that. And guess what? He is going to use as his means. You. He's going to use you. You're going to be the instruments in the Redeemer's hands. You're going to be his hands and his feet to go to that brother or sister. He's going to use you. Yes, he will do it, but he is going to use you. Alec Motier says it again. Wonderfully, he says, we cannot but be struck by the fact that James speaks of the concerned believer as bringing back, savoring, and covering the sins of the one in error. Surely these are things which only God can do. Only God can forgive sins, save us from them, and give us the gift of repentance by which we return from our personal far country. How can we do these things? The answer is that we cannot. But, listen... We must act as if we could. These words in James express the measure of the concern and effort that we are called to expend in our spiritual concern for those in spiritual need. Though we cannot convert them, we must labor to do so. Though we cannot save them from death, we must strive for their spiritual welfare as if their eternal destiny rested with us. Though we cannot cover their sins, we must follow the example of the Son of God who can do so and hold nothing too dear to ourselves and no sacrifice too great if only they are saved. For the local church, listen, for the local church of which James speaks, yes, Lord, we are listening. For the local church of which James speaks, is truly a fellowship of concern. See, James isn't talking here to an immature church. James isn't communicating here to a bunch of guys that, oh, listen, you're just having a go for Jesus. No, he's saying, listen, you want to be mature? You want to grow up as a church? You want to get older? Then you must understand that the local church then is a truly a fellowship of concern. 
Yes, only God can save. And I have a concern. I have a concern, James tells us, that some of us are wandering from the truth. Some of us are wandering from the truth in a way that we're displaying then sinful patterns and habits in our lives. And I'm disturbed about that because the consequences of that are death. For some, it no doubt reveals that they weren't Christians in the first place. Yes, they had some type of faith. But faith without works are dead. It has never been sustained. It has never borne fruit in their lives ongoingly. And we need to be deeply concerned for them because most likely hell is their eternal destiny. And for others, well, yeah, they're Christians. But they are being robbed of all life in the name of Jesus. So I have a remedy, James tells us. You. It's you. It's you, each individual, going to their friend on a most important rescue mission. Understanding that they are wandering from the truth. Understanding the consequences. It's us being bothered enough and loving enough. Understanding that I am a part of a fellowship of a concern. I am a member of this local church. And so I must, before the Lord, go to them. To be bothered about them. And to understand that is clearly what God is calling me to. Now, I'm aware that for James, as he concludes and puts his full stop at the end, he gives us no details of what that means, does he? He gives us no details of how do you do this. And that's uncommon for James because all the rest of the time, he talks to us in detail, okay, so this is what you've got to do. This is how it works. Well, I submit to you, most likely he's not doing that here because he's taught this church before, that he was a pastor to them before. He knows when he's saying these words, you know what to do. Well, we have not been pastored by James, and so I don't want to assume that we know what to do. So what do you do? What does this rescue mission actually look like? What does this ministry of spiritual reclamation actually involve? What do we do when we have a brother or sister who is clearly wandering from the path, and we recognize, I am meant to go to them? What do you do? What does it look like? What does it involve? Well, that's my third and final point then, number three, the application. What does it involve? What does this most important rescue mission actually look like? Well, it looks like it involves four things. And it's four things that every rescue mission has to look like. Otherwise, it won't be effective. They're all in God's Word. That's what I love about God's Word. It never leaves us guessing. He doesn't say, okay, off you go. I'm not sure what I'm doing. Off you go. No. Okay, off you go. Now listen up. This is how you do it. So what does this rescue mission involve? What does this ministry of spiritual reclamation actually look like? It looks like four things, and here's the first. First thing it involves and looks like is love. It always involves and looks like love. It always has to. See, in 1 John 3.16, John says, For this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John knows very well that, listen, in our lives, if we're going to do ministry, if we're ever going to help anybody, then the foundation of everything that is going to need to take place has to be love. We've got to love people. We've got to love people. So think of Christ. Look at him. 
He laid down his life for us. He gave his perfect, sinless, glorious, kingly life up for you. And so now, as you see your brothers and sisters around you, you must do the same. If you're truly a Christian, that means following Christ, becoming like Christ. Guess what? He gave his life up for you. So that's what we need to do. We need to consider others more important than ourselves. We need to love people. If we're going to do anything in ministry, then we have to love more than anything else. And I submit to you that when it comes to these rescue missions, love is times that by about 100, okay? Otherwise, it will not be an effective rescue mission. See, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin... You who are spiritual should restore him, listen, gently. You who are spiritual should restore him gently. See, his whole premise is, listen, if your friend or your brother or sister is caught in a sin, then you need to go to them. You need to realize that you are on a rescue mission to them. But don't go in all guns blazing. Don't go in angrily. Don't go in self-righteously. No, it's only going to be effective if you go in gently. You're going to have to be gentle. I have never seen yet a rescue mission ever successful when somebody goes in all guns blazing. Negative? Eh, Never. Never seen it. Because most often when an individual goes in all guns blazing, they lack love. They're irritated. They're not loving in that moment. Love then is vital. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 to 8, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. See, the first thing that this rescue mission always involves then is love, because we need to to go to that brother or sister very, very gently. And my friends, if you then lack love for somebody, I want to encourage you to cry out to God for help in that. Cry out to God that he would give you eyes to see that individual like he sees that individual. Because guess what? He gave up his life for that individual. He's not irritated with that individual. He's not looking self-righteously at that individual. He is remembering a time when he died in their place because he loves them. So if you're struggling to love somebody, then cry out to God that you'd have eyes to see them like he sees them. Somebody who's been made in his image that is wandering off the path that we need to do all we can to rescue. And secondarily, if you're struggling to love somebody, then not only pray that God will open your eyes to how he sees them, but pray that God will open your eyes to yourself. Because you, my friend, are no better than the individual you are pursuing. And you, but by the grace of God, would be doing exactly the same thing as them. John Newton then, in a letter to a very young and new pastor, he says the following. He says, I pray that the Lord give you a gentle and loving spirit towards all men and practical conviction 
that grace alone has made you to differ. I love that. He's saying, listen, I pray that as you start to step forward in your ministry and do what the Lord has called you to do, that you remember in all things it is only his grace that has caused you to differ to that individual. My friends, we need to love people. And if we're going to successfully go on a rescue mission to them, it has to begin with love. And then it has to continue, number two, with knowledge. It has to continue through knowing. It has to continue then with the person knowing how you feel about them. It's very important that the individual that we're going after is aware of your love and affection for them. If you don't love them, don't say anything to them. When you love them, tell them you love them. It's so important. It's great to love. It's important to love. It's even more important to tell them that you love them, how you feel about them. James is a master at it. When he says at the start of verse 19, my brothers, that's the 15th time he said it. And that is a loaded term throughout the entire letter because he wants them to know, listen, you're not just people that I get paid to look after. You're not just people that, hey, I think about you now and again. And He wants you to know, I'll tell you who you are to me. You are my family. And I deeply care about you because you are my brothers. And he's aware he's going to need to address them in some things. He's going to need to help them see some things in their lives, some things that aren't going great for them, which he addresses them all about in the letter. But he wants them to know time and time again, this is how I feel about you. I love you. You are my family. You are my brothers and sisters. Paul does exactly the same thing all the time. To the Corinthian church. I mean, the Corinthian church are just in a mess. They are having adulterous relationships. They're getting drunk on the, on the wine and greeting themselves on the bread. They are suing one another. This church is in an absolute mess. They are dividing up left, right, and center over crazy, small, irritating things. You know what else they're doing? When Paul is trying to care for them, they're pointing the finger at him. Saying, well, you never cared about us. Look at you. You just did it for the money. They start to have a go at their leader. I would have a few words to say to that church. They would be slightly different to Paul's words. This is what Paul says when he writes to them, given all they are, given all that they're enjoying, given even the finger that they're pointing at him, he says, listen, I give thanks to God always for you. Corinthian church, when I think about you, listen, I'm going to need to address you in some things because some of the things you're doing are not right before the Lord and I want to love you enough to tell you that. But here's how I feel about you. Whenever I think about you, I always thank God for you. I thank God that he chose you before the foundation of the earth and I thank God that he died in your place. And I thank God that you will make it to the end. You will surely make it to the end because he holds you and loves you. He will see you home. And Corinthians, I need to chat to you about certain things in the church that need to be addressed, but I want you to know I love you. And my friends, if we're going to be successful on this mission, it is vital that the individual we are pursuing is aware of our love for them. That is not a sovereign grace distinctive. It is not some type of technique that we use to try and get in with people. It is God's word that we're seeking to imitate. This is the way brothers and sisters cared for each other. They were not sweetening each other up. They were communicating how they felt very deliberately. And it would appear that God in his grace seems to move them through that type of care. 
and that type of love and that type of affection that is being known. It is vital that we love and it is vital that the person that we are pursuing knows of our affection and love for them. Likewise, it is vital that we know and not assume what is really going on in them. As an expression of our love, we must not assume we know. It's like when we looked at sinful judging back in the letter of James. It's so important that we take the time to love people enough to really get to know them and to really find out what's going on and not just assume. See, just because somebody misses three weeks of church in a row does not mean they are backsliding and needs the entire life group to go on a rescue mission to them. Just because someone has been spotted walking down the street with a woman who is not his wife doesn't mean he's having an affair. We don't need to communicate to everybody. Oh my gosh, I saw them with somebody I don't know. They're probably having an affair. Just because someone is upset on a Sunday morning, seemingly relating potentially to somebody in their gospel community group, doesn't mean their life is falling apart and they're gossiping about an individual, and they're about to leave the church within a week. It doesn't mean necessarily those things. And so in love, what we've got to do is get close enough to people to really know them, to really know what's going on. And if we're concerned that they start to be veering off the path, we go to them and we inquire, how are you? Hey, I haven't seen you for a while. How's how's your life? Don't just assume all the dots, because they may tell you something that you are so pleased that you didn't address them in before because the situation is very different to what you thought it was. It's so important if we're going to go on these rescue missions that we love the individual and then secondarily that we know the individual, that that we know what's going on in their lives and that they know consistently of our love and affection for them. That's why it's so important we attend gospel community groups because I, I I can guarantee to you it is going to be very difficult to address somebody on a rescue mission when you barely even know them because you never attended. You never gave in time in the good days. So now in the bad days, you're trying to think through, oh, how can I address them? I can see things are wrong, but I barely know them. Yeah, we barely know them because you've not given the time. Part of the reason why we attend gospel community groups is because your brothers and sisters need you. Because maybe one day you'll be called on a rescue mission to them. So they need you. And they need to know how you feel about them. Because maybe you'll have to go to them one day. Third part then of this rescue mission is prayer. These missions always involve prayer. 1 John 5 verse 16 says, If anyone sees his brother commit a sin, then he should pray, and God will give him life. Isn't that wonderful? You see somebody in their sin, you see somebody wandering off the path, what do you do? Pray! Because God in his grace may give them life. James says the same in chapter 5 verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Don't just toddle off on the rescue mission because you love them and you know them. Listen, you recognize what's going on. You cry out to work out when do I need to go? How should this be done? And then you hit your knees and say, God, help me and go before me. And James says, yeah, you know what? The prayer of the righteous person, that's powerful. Man, that's powerful. Look at Elijah. Look at what God did in his life. Look at the way God answered his prayers. And yet he was a man with a nature just like yours. Prayer then is absolutely vital within this rescue mission. It is vital that we love. It is vital that we know. It is vital that we pray. And then number four, it is vital that we go. See, here's where sometimes it falls down. We love somebody, we know what's going on, 
and we've prayed. And then we talk. But not to the individual. We talk to other people about it. Hoping that somebody else might do something. And quickly, what we're actually engaging in then is gossip. Sometimes even slander. Because we're still not going to the individual. The individual that's in need of attention. The individual that's in need of addressing. My friends, we must be willing to be courageous. And we must be willing to go. In 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 15 Paul told the Thessalonian church regarding a disobedient Christian, i.e. somebody who is wandering off the truth, to warn him as a brother. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 31, Paul alerts the Ephesian church to his life and the way he was when he was with them for the three years. He says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night or day with tears. We would be mistaken to think that these rescue missions are always like a day out at the beach. They are difficult. They take courage. They can be hard. They can be difficult in numerous different ways. But what James wants to help us see is, listen, when a brother or sister wanders off the truth, the remedy is you going on a rescue mission. And you know what that involves? It involves you actually going. You're actually speaking to them. And listen, I'll give you a clue. Do not text the individual. Do not email the individual. You know what texts and emails lack? Tone. No facial expressions. Even if you put little emojis, it doesn't work. (laughs) Texts don't communicate affection. Emails don't really communicate affection. What communicates affection is our face when we're talking to the individual and our tone as we're listening as well as speaking. And we're engaging with them. And we're talking to them. Listen, let's be honest. Going to individuals when they are off the path can be hard, can it not? Why is that? Well, because of the fear of man. Because the truth is we want to be liked by that individual. We want that individual to respect us. We want that individual to love us. We want them to like us. And so we struggle to go to them because we want to be liked by them. The fear of man is is such a part of our lives, isn't it? That's why in chapter 5, verse 12, where James says, listen, let your yes be yes and your no be no, we can hear that and we think, yeah, sure, we can do that. That's not a problem. Yeah, just live a life of integrity. Great. Okay, well, here's the challenge. Let your yes be yes. I can do that. Okay, let your no be no. Oh, I don't like saying no to people because they might be upset. Why is that? Fear of man. So we don't say no, do we? Somebody invites us over and we say, oh, look, maybe, but we have no intention of going at all. Why is that? Oh, I don't really want to go. So why didn't you tell him no? Oh, I don't want to be upset. Why is that? Fear of man. Fear of man is such a functioning part of our lives. And fear of man can prevent us going on to these rescue missions. My friends, we must remind ourselves what is at stake here. What is at stake here in verse 20 is death. Death for that brother or sister. Whether it be spiritual death or functional death, any which way, it is, it is death. And so we need to love them enough, therefore, to go after them. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. 
So go we must. And therein then James concludes his letter. Begins to sign off in verses 12 through 18, exhorting us to keep looking up and to ensure then whatever's going on in our lives, whether it be in the good times or the challenging times, we keep looking up. We keep crying out to him for grace, realizing that we're never going to be able to do this by ourselves. We're not going to be able to function in all that he's called us to here by ourselves and understanding that as we pray, we access the gracious, generous power of the Lord himself. And then he concludes in verses 19 and 20 and says, listen, you need to keep looking up and you need to keep looking at each other. You need to keep looking around to your brothers and sisters around you. Because are you your brother's keeper? Well, yes. And so where they then go wandering off the truth and begin to display in their lives sinful habits that can so easily lead to death, in love and in knowledge and in prayer, we need to go to them. We need to go on this most important rescue mission. And my friends, as we go then, would all glory truly go to him? Because you are the sent, but he is the sender. He is the one that is orchestrating this mission. He is the one who wants to save. He is the one who wants to bring back. He is the one who wants to cover, by his grace, a multitude of sins in their life. You are the sent, but he is the sender. And so may all glory go to him. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a letter. And how kind of you to include this in this glorious book as direction for our lives. Lord, you could have just saved us and then left us. You could have saved us and called us to yourselves, encouraged us to declare you as Lord and God, and then sent us on our way, knocking doors and telling people about you. But you didn't. You you bring us together into the context of church, in the context of community, into the context of family, where people are brothers and sisters together. Lord, did you help us then to have the courage to go when a most important rescue mission is needed? Lord, help us not to turn a blind eye or assume somebody else will. But help us to realize these verses are talking to me. And when the need then arises, Lord, would we go in love, in knowledge and prayer, would we go in a sweet desire to rescue that brother or sister? Lord, we do thank you then that although we have a part to play, you are the sender. You are the one who sent your son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. When the time was right, you sent him for us. Our Lord, now you're sending us because you want to bring the person back. So Lord, as we begin then to close in song today, as we begin to close this entire book, would all of our eyes go to you. You are the redeemer. You are the saviour. You are the king and you are the sender. So with all glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.